Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. It's a road tech week and today we're going to be talking about winter bikes. I'm joined by Simon Bromley and Jack Luke and I'm Matthew Loveridge and I think between us we've done a fair bit of winter riding. Before we jump in, I'm going to define what we mean by winter riding because I know that whenever we talk about cycling in the winter on bike radar, a small cohort of readers jump in and say, your winter's not a proper winter. It's minus 50 degrees where I live and I need to battle through snow and ice to ride my bicycle. Now, the British winter that we are most familiar with, it's not like that usually. Occasionally, we do get some fairly severe weather. But by and large, the problem is dealing with cold and most of all, wet. So let's talk about our winter bikes. Simon Bromley, I know that you are a fan of riding an old hack bike with a few choice modifications to get you through the winter. Can you talk us through your winter bike? Yeah, that's right. I've I've kind of been of the kind of racier mindset where I don't want to ride my nice race bike with all the kind of nice sort of, you know, slightly more expensive parts and expensive tires through the winter. So I've always chosen to go down the route of, you know, the an, an old frame with kind of old you know, not necessarily worn out parts, but kind of parts that have been, you know, superseded by newer ones in the market. So cheap parts and, you know, it's it's not a dedicated winter bike in the sense that it was built to be that, but um, it's got clip-on mug guards, winter tires, you know, that sort of thing. What is your bike, by the way? <laughs> so my bike, it's, it's a aluminium frame. I think it's a a felt f75 now that's one of the very first road bikes i ever got and it doesn't doesn't have great big tire clearances or anything like that it doesn't even have mud guard mounts but it's still a usable frame i can just about squeeze a kind of 26 27 millimeter gator skin in there and uh you know i think it's got 10 speed ultegra on it at the moment but it's a bit of a mishmash and how did you land on this as a choice? Was this a carefully curated selection of components or was it more happenstance? Yeah, it's more happenstance. It's just it's just kind of, you know, I used to have 10-speed Ultegra on my race bike back when 10-speed Ultegra was a thing, I guess, around 2014. And then whenever I moved to 11-speed, the kind of 10-speed components just moved across and I would have, you know, replaced the chain, replaced maybe a cassette. You know the, the the chain set, I guess, will will change if I'm running a power meter. Yeah, I might add my power meter chain set onto that bike for that time. But um, but yeah, it's just just whatever. Thereby I've got. doubling its value. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. I think the power meter is probably worth more than the rest of the bike put together. But like like you said, it, it kind of it takes the expense out of. I don't. You know, I get very upset about dirty bikes. So if I if I had to if I had to use an expensive bike during the winter, I'd be forever. I wouldn't want to ride it really. <laughs> do, do you let your felt get muckier than you would, for example, your giant TCR long termer that you're running at the moment? Jack's shaking his head. Uh, I mean, absolutely <laughs> not. Simon is a compulsive cleanser of bikes, and I know for a fact that his winter bike is far cleaner than any of my summer bikes. So I tend to clean it. 
after every proper ride I, I you know i do let it get get more dirty than than my race bike in the sense that i tend to have i have a habit of cleaning my race bike literally every single time i go out on a ride where i might come you know within six foot of a puddle but um the the winter bike does i do allow it to take slightly more abuse but um but again i'm you know long time listeners in this podcast know i'm very cheap so i don't i don't like the idea of my drivetrain even getting close to having any friction in it and potentially wearing out so yeah i do I, I try and stay on top of it maybe for a little contrast jack you should tell us about your favorite bike for the winter at the moment so yeah, this winter I have been riding my Surly Steamroller so far, which is, I am not afraid to say, my all-time favourite bike. Um, it is a flat bar, fixed gear, steel, gravel, idiot wagon. Um, I built it up at the kind of start of lockdown. I, I used to have a Steamroller as a review bike a couple of years ago, and as soon as it went back, I missed it tremendously. So I was desperate to get my hands on one. And as a fixed gear, so with a single-speed drivetrain, far less moving parts than your typical geared drivetrain. Maintenance is basically a non-issue and my cleaning regime goes no further than, as I did last night, a wipe down with a rag when I came back from a very rainy ride or maybe a cursory hose down if I'm feeling generous. And it's not the only winter bike I've had in previous years. Last year I was riding an all-city uh, Mr. Pink, which was a kind of dedicated winter uh, bike with full cover, wonderful, big chunky velo orange mud guards with big nerdy mud flaps, absolutely wonderful for riding in the winter because it kept those uh, mud guards kept myself and bike dry. Um, controversially, based around rim brakes, despite the bike uh, the fact I had any bike I could possibly want, I decided to go for rim brakes because personally, I slightly prefer them for winter riding, only because I'm quite lazy when it comes to cleaning bikes and disc brakes tend to get a little bit more easily contaminated than rim brakes, so. In terms of a very low maintenance option, that's what I went for. Um, I should stress though that the All City is definitely not a slumming it bike like Simon. I am cycling's number one gravel influencer, so I would only ride the very best. And currently, it sports a set of nice fifty mil ish deep light bicycle carbon wheels, a double sided rotor <laughs> two in power, uh, <laughs> two in power power meter. It had an extra light stem on for a while, not out of choice, just because it was the right length and I stuck with that for a while and all manner of other fancy bits. So um, truly showing my spoilt industry credentials there. I can't, I'm still reeling from that spicy take about brakes. I'm sorry, did you just say that rim brakes are better for the winter than disc brakes? No, no, I don't think that's a fair, uh, that, for me in my particular needs, I find rim brakes to be sufficient um, for my requirements. Um, disc brakes are undisputedly better for winter riding. They are. They give far more control in uh, wet weather and, you know, they're unaffected by riding through the mud, for example. But if you're a lazy boy like me, you're just noodling about and the main goal of going out riding is to eat beans on toast with your friends, then, you know, the braking power of alloy rims with rim brakes is more than sufficient. And should I decide to ride through oily streets it's far easier to clean and maintain them also they look great and i like that 
do you also choose a fixed gear drivetrain because you're aiming to be that crusty old bloke on the uh, group ride lecturing people about souplesse and how back in his day anything less than a 42 tooth <laughs> chain ring was a sign of moral weakness? Uh, no, I like riding fixed gears because they're fun. I don't really subscribe to any of the beliefs, the traditional beliefs around them, increasing your, you know, pedaling efficiency or making you a better rider overall. I think they make you stronger. I think there's little doubt about that because you're pushing around a harder gear than average when it comes to climbs. Um, and in terms of like core and upper body fitness, which I think we can all, you know, agree cyclists lack in the most part, you know, they perhaps create a more physical pedaling style. And I think they improve you in, in that regard. But as far as, you know, I don't know, going back to the pure roots of cycling or them necessarily making a better rider overall, no, I don't think that for a minute. If anything, I think it'll make you a lazier rider as they tend to push you through the dead spot in your pedal stroke. So yeah, it's nothing to do with yeah, that. Yeah, that, that's been my experience of riding fixies as well. I do do keep one in the garage for occasional outings. I mostly use it to ride to like doctor's appointments and stuff. Um, but unlike you, I've never done big rides on it because I actually really enjoy coasting down hills. Well, I enjoy pulling big fat skids and telling people that I rode 100 miles in a fixed gear or almost 200. And that's really the main draw is being able to show off. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I guess my approach to winter bikes is not dissimilar in that I believe in a certain amount of specialism for them. I, in principle, would always prefer to have a dedicated bike and in particular one that is fully equipped with permanent full-length mudguards, uh, which is the defining... We're going to talk about components later, but that is like the defining thing for a winter bike. I think my feelings about what makes the perfect win winter bike have certainly evolved. For many years, I rode a rim brake uh, Van Nicholas Yukon, which is a n nice titanium sort of endurance frame. Uh, and that was absolutely fine, but it, by current standards, didn't have particularly large clearances. And obviously, it was rim brake, uh, a very much more traditional bike than... I would perhaps go for now. I think these days I would be thinking really hard about whether I wanted something more multi-role that could maybe be both a winter bike and something that let me dabble off-road. So a gravel bike or an endurance bike with the ability to take nice big tires that could kind of LARP as a gravel bike, even if it wasn't technically defined as one. I do think it's interesting, the like classic winter bike, I think it's basically died out because up until couple of years ago even you could still go and go to a place like Ribble Cycles for example or Dolan and for something like maybe 600 700 pounds they'd set you up with the cheapest possible aluminium frame with mud guards and like a Tiagra group set or something and for a lot of British club cyclists that was how they put in the miles over the winter because it was just the most affordable bike out there. I think whenever you see someone on a bike of that exact mould you can mark them out as a total hard man, hard person, you know, you know that they will be a monster. Um, it feels like a, yeah, a badge of pride to ride a, what is it, a Ribble 705? Is that the one? That's the, the, the... I think that was the classic one, yeah. They were always that blue mm. colour. Um, and quite often, if you bought it, you could buy it as a complete bike, but a lot of people bought them as frame sets and they would regularly discount them to like 100 quid for a frame and fork, which is just insane. But I think they were very limited on tire clearance you could probably get a 23 tire with mud guards or a 25 without or something so obviously by today's standards unrideable because we all ride 28s <laughs> 32s now don't we 
Um, should we talk about like specific components? So what, Jack, would you, leaving aside the fixed gear thing, but say you were specking a winter bike, what would you want on that bike in terms of, say, like drivetrain or group set? Mm, I think definitely going for one of your lower end group sets is definitely no bad thing to do. Something like Tiagra 105, give, I mean, really honestly, all the performance of any of the, the higher tier group sets, but you still get the advantages of your on. 105, the 11 speed, or even on Tiagra, which is now 10 speed, the advantages of kind of modern shifting technology, they feel much nicer ergonomically. I'd be looking at that as my kind of, uh, my group set of choice. Um, obviously, if you're dabbling in a gravel kind of take on things, and really, if I was buying my own bike, I could only have one, I probably would follow suit with you, Matthew, and look at a, a more multidiscipline bike. Um, something with a double drivetrain are probably my preference only because for road riding, it gives you that slightly wider range. And certainly here, when we think about off-road riding in the UK or gravel riding, it's not your kind of endless horizons of Kansas prairie land. It's, it's a more uh, vertiginous affair. And the wider range and being able to dump, or sorry, I should say, being able to dump gears more easily as you can with a double drivetrain is, is preferable in, in my eyes. How about you, Simon? Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, you know, even on my race bikes these days, I haven't. I've still kind of got you know one hundred and five derailers in places because oh, they're just so good. How do you survive? So. God. <laughs> yeah, it, it would be. It would seem churlish. To, I can't imagine running a Dura Ace drivetrain in the winter. I'm sure there are people out there who, who do, but um, it would that would that would feel like sacrilege to me. Uh, you know, I, I think. It, it's it's there's there's a lot more choice these days and like you said i think like matthew i would want something you know if i was buying a, a dedicated winter bike i would want something more versatile with more tire clearance because just you know one of my main you know, one of the main problems with r riding on the road and i suppose we'll probably come on to tires a bit more later but it, it's just using you know bikes with small tire clearances you, you know we end up using sort of slightly harder tires that are more puncture resistant but then they're also very uncomfortable and one of the one of the real kind of displeasures of winter riding is being uncomfortable and uh tires certainly contribute to that so it'd be nice to have a bike with generous clearances you know one for going off road but two just to just to get you know 30 millimeter tires to give you a lot more comfort it's much nicer simon did a ride to his um, sister's house last winter and i recall he did it on his winter bike and the first thing he told me about when he finished it was not you know how wonderfully day he'd had riding out in beautiful crisp winter day it was uh oh these gator skin tires are simply not supple enough I feel rattled <laughs> to pieces. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think that part of that was my fault in the sense that I had like some of the thinnest bar tape on that bike ever. And, uh, but yeah, it, I just remember, yeah, got to, yeah, it was, I think it was about a hundred miles and I got, got to the end of it and my shoulders were just absolutely killing me. Um, because I'm, you know, a bit namby pamby, I guess. <laughs> uh, we should, we'll talk about tires actually more in a second, just before we leave drivetrains behind. Um, I was going to ask, do you think there's an argument for like keeping things matching with your kind of nice bike? Because, for example, when I had that Van Nicholas Yukon, um, my main bike was a Scott Addict and it had Campagnolo Centaur on it, uh, which at the time was a sort of posh 10-speed group set. So what I did was for the winter bike, I got Veloce, which was the cheaper 10-speed group set. And that meant that 
everything was cross compatible. And of course, with Shimano, you could do the same at the moment because the top three group sets are all 11 speed. Obviously, you can't do that with SRAM at the moment. Do, do you think there's an argument there? Obviously, you guys have so many bikes that you don't have to worry about this sort of thing. But for, for the muggles... <laughs> I think there's an argument to be made for that, and it's certainly convenient. Uh, like, it's not something I'm currently doing. Like I say, I, you know, I've got old sets of 10-speed wheels uh, that uh, just they've just gone into complete service as winter wheels now. I mean, actually, I probably should check the rims of those wheels before I start riding this this winter again. But it's certainly something that's quite convenient because, yeah, then if you want to swap parts over you know, for this winter or the following winter, then it, it does make sense to, to have that compatibility. But, um, you know, for me, who's someone who doesn't want to spend too much money, I tend to just default to whatever I've got rather than going out and spending lots of money just to get exactly the right thing. Simon, I'm going to give you I, I... one sentence to say something about wax chains because I can almost feel the tension <laughs> from the other side of Bristol and I know you're dying to tell us about immersion waxing. Well, I thought we were going to have a whole 25-minute segment on this. Um, <laughs> this is your chance. Okay, so, yeah, so lubrication is is the kind of one thing I've not quite worked out yet. And now, you know, if, again, long-time listeners will know that I'm a big fan of immersion waxing, you know, primarily for the kind of the gains, but also because it reduces the kind of wear on your drivetrain massively. Um, and, you know, that's good for saving for saving your pennies. But the problem with running a wax drivetrain is because there's no oil in the system, you know, by design, that's the whole point of it. Uh, but that means that the chains and the drivetrain can rust quite easily if you go ride it in the wet and then obviously come back and, and you know, leave it for anything more than five minutes. And, uh, you know, obviously rust on metals is not great. So I haven't, you know, last winter I was kind of trialing running wax chains during the winter and it, you know, it's, it's a bit, diff it's a bit difficult because it's fine if you can get home and clean the bike straight away and, you know, maybe, you know, re, re kind of lubricate the chain or top it up with some kind of wax based lubricant. But for example, you know, if you're, if you're riding, so <laughs> I was commuting on this bike. And so, yes, I was running a wax train for my commute and uh, obviously leaving it in the kind of bike shed in the bottom of work, you know, you'd come back to it after, after a day of work and find the chain all very rusty. Now I didn't really notice any kind of massive detrimental effects, but obviously that was because I would go home and then kind of fix the problem oh, but for mental, someone who doesn't Simon. want to do that. <laughs> But so I was talking to the guy from uh, an Australian company called Zero Friction Cycling who do um, sort of lubricant testing. And he mentioned that brands like YBN and KMC actually do anti-corrosion chains. So I might try that out this winter and see where it gets. Because obviously the problem, you, you could just use a wet lubricant. But the problem with that is, is that it attracts a lot of dirt and a lot of grit and obviously in during the winter there's even more of that and and you know we all know that a kind of winter can chew through an expensive drivetrain very quickly and i'm just not prepared to do that how does your um regime your cleansing regime compare matthew i hate cleaning chains and do as little as possible i've experimented with various different lubes currently doing the kind of the sort of almost detergent like rock and roll style lube which runs very clean, but you seem to have to apply it with astonishing frequency. So I'm not totally convinced by this as an approach, but I do think that fundamentally you might be better off 
just running the consumable parts cheaper. So buy cheap chains and cheap cassettes, but change them frequently so that you're not knackering your expensive chain rings, for example. Or do as we do and work in the bike industry. And when your bike gets too dirty, your review bike, just send it back and get a new one. <laughs> or do that, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 and I, I tend to agree with you, Matthew, that it does make it more palatable to run cheaper things. But obviously, you know, the guys. This is, of course, a good point made by the guys from Zero Friction Cycling and said that's not very environmentally friendly to just kind of, chew, you know, not clean your bike and chew through your parts because ultimately that stuff just kind of ends up in the bin and or it's hard to recycle. So it's better to keep on top of your cleaning in that sense. One could argue that running a slow cooker 24-7 <laughs> to immerse your chains isn't that environmentally friendly either. But, you know, should we, should we move on? We touched on tyres earlier. Um, what... What is your ideal tyre for the winter? Because presumably it's not the same as the one that you're going to ride on perfect sunny days, is it? I have a very quick, clean answer for this. I used one tyre last winter. It was the expo- uh, WTB Exposure 30mm tyre, set up tubeless. I used it across multiple wheel sets. And though it's not the hardest wearing tyre I've ever had, it never punctured once across the entire winter. It gives more than enough volume to cushion my gentle peach. And it fits on the majority of bikes. It's my tire of choice. I gave it five stars on bike radar. And I feel like I've settled on that. And I'm never going to bother experimenting with anything else again because I don't care. It's 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 puncture-proof enough. It's not that kind of wooden quality of a really heavy duty winter tire like the uh, gator skin we mentioned before. It's a good all-rounder. That's my top pick. Simon? I haven't, you know, I get part of this is part of the problem is that my bike, my winter bike has very limited clearances. So I haven't, I've only really tried and I, you know, I don't have tubeless wheels on there. So I have, you know, for a long time, I've, I've stuck with the kind of traditional continental gator skin tire and they are great in terms of durability and puncture resistance and things like that. But like I said, they're not, they're not particularly comfortable because the casings are very stiff and, and, and and that's, you know, just not great. But if I had a bike with wider clearances, like Jack's saying, then and, you know, I had sort of tubeless compatible wheels, then I think, as Jack says, a kind of slightly harder wearing, you know, without going kind of insane, tubeless ready tyre is probably the right idea. Now, of course, I you know, I love a kind of cotton clincher for racing, but I wouldn't dream of running, you know, tan, dirty tan walls is is quite offensive in my opinion so i wouldn't dream of running those during the winter god you must have hated running riding with me rim brakes with <laughs> grimy stained tan walls i'm such a difficult boy I, I was gonna say that alone is a good argument for running discs in the winter is that you can run tan wall tires without ruining them mm. um i i've i've very similar opinions about tires i think the equation has maybe changed a bit because it used to be that if you ran a lightweight racy tyre in the winter, you were running a much higher risk of puncturing. And obviously puncturing in the winter, it's annoying to puncture regardless, but puncturing in the winter is worse because you're trying to change tyres when it's cold and your hands are probably stiffer and it's just not a very pleasant experience. But with if you are running tubeless, that does change things a bit because you can maybe get away with running a slightly more fragile tyre than you would otherwise. But I think even so, if I were specifically choosing a tyre for the winter, I would opt for something with slightly better kind of rough road endurance credentials. There are some quite seemingly supple tyres on the market, like, for example, the Hutchinson Sector 28 is one 
which is not too heavy, rides really nicely, has very like supple ride quality, um, but is that little bit tougher than an absolute pure race tire. I think the number one thing in a, to, to make a winter road bike, you know, tires and drivetrain choices, whatever aside, um, the number one thing, and this is a real hobby horse of Matthew, if you thought Simon had opinions about wax chains and latex tubes, well, wait till you hear Matthew Loveridge get started on mudguards and more specifically bikes that don't come with provisions to fit mudguards. Yeah, mudguards are the number one consideration. If you think if you're thinking about buying a winter bike specifically for the purpose of riding in wet weather, get one that takes proper full mudguards and has mounts, existing mounts to take those. Because there are lots of bikes where you can kind of bodge mudguards onto them using like P-clips and things, but a bike with generous clearances and a full set of bosses or eyelets to actually bolt mudguards to just makes life so, so much easier. And there are actually quite a few more bikes coming onto the market now in the kind of endurance gravel adjacent category that seem to come with mudguard mounts. But I wouldn't say they were all created equally because with disc brakes and things, the bosses aren't always that conveniently placed. So it is worth looking into that. As an example, I not long ago fitted mudguards to my wife's um, Canyon Grail AL, which is the really nice entry level gravel bike. Uh, which has full mounts, but they are positioned sort of up the stays and up the fork legs in such a way that no standard mudguard will just go straight on. And I spent hours bending things to fit and like perfectly arranging stuff. And they used a non-standard hardware size that was one millimeter less than most of the hardware used on bikes. So do do your research and make your life easy by choosing a bike that takes proper mudguards because people always misunderstand this you don't just get mudguards because it rains a lot in the winter you get mudguards because the roads never dry out that is the key thing oh, i was just gonna say yeah as well i think you know mudguards are you know as you say the roads never dry out they also they're, they're a key component um in keeping your feet warm because if you get wet feet, your feet will get cold. And so you you really need, it's not just that, you know, you can get the, as you say, you can kind of get clip-on ones that will kind of clip onto the rear and stop you from getting a wet back and a wet wet bum. But having a proper full-length mudguard at the front with a very good flap will also stop your feet getting wet. But also it, they are a courtesy to other riders. And I think that's one of the kind of really underrated things that if I was, you know, if you turn up on a group ride without mudguards in the winter, everyone's going to hate you. Don't be that guy or don't be that gal. Our former colleague, Joe Norledge, is notorious for this. We insist on riding <laughs> a, a mountain bike all year round with no mudguards. And uh, he's extremely fast. So he always ends up on the front of a group. And it's uh, very unpleasant where I'll have massive full cover, cover alloy guards and I'll still end up with a face full of dirt. And on that note, I, you know, the SKS P series is the kind of classic, the classic full cover mudguard. And they're very good. Um, there's really good availability of spares for the hardware. Their chromoplast construction, which has like two plastic layers with an alloy layer sandwiched beneath, is very good and it lasts a very long time, providing you fit it well. But for me, you know, if you're having a dedicated winter bike and you can stretch that little bit extra in terms of budget, something like Velo Orange's mud guards, or if you've got loads of cash, the equivalent from Honjo, or for example, um, the ones from uh, Portland Design Works. Alloy mudguards, in my experience, last a lot longer 
um, and providing you fit them to the right looking bike and you take the time to do it well, I also think they can kind of complement the look of the bike. Um, and they just work much better. They're far easier to bend back into shape. They're not going to crack. The hardware tends to be better quality. I recommend you spend that little bit more. If you can't fit full mod guards to your bike, but you are going to ride through the winter, what's your next best option for keeping your bum dry? So th- that perfectly describes me, I suppose, because my felt doesn't have uh, provisions for mug for full length mud guards. So I've got a set of uh, SKS race blade longs, which uh, kind of mount under the the rim brake bolting section, and they essentially mimic full length mud guards in the sense that they, you know, cover the the front wheel down with a flap and then and and a little bit in front of the the front of the brake as well although that flaps horrendously which is very very annoying uh, and then at the back again it kind of covers the majority of the rear wheel and a little bit down the inside they they don't get anywhere near actual full length mud guards like Jack is describing but they kind of get you fifty percent of the way I, I guess and they are you know, miles better than nothing at all yeah i agree completely i because obviously i ride lots of different test bikes and a lot of them don't have mud guards my kind of absolute last resort is to fit an ass saver style mud guard which clips to the back of the saddle in and that reduces the tendency for you to end up with the soaking wet chamois which is like wearing a nappy but really compared to proper mud guards it's not that effective and you can still particularly get a huge amount of spray off the front wheel as well which goes you get both the spray onto your feet but you also get the stuff that gets kicked up and ends up on your face which is just delightful i have another joe knowledge anecdote about that i was riding with him last winter and yeah he was on his kind of mountain bike and he asked me if it was raining and it turned out it's actually just a spray off his front wheel going up into his face so that was quite amusing (laughs) hoist by his own petard What are is, is there anything else that you would really have to have on your winter bike, Jack? I am a big dynamo darling. I'm a true believer in dynamo lighting as the ultimate solution for winter riding. Um, here in the UK, the clock's just changed a few days ago now, which means that it's getting darker in the evenings earlier, which means riding at night and certainly after dusk here, it's a legal requirement to ride with lights. It's also a sensible thing to do. You're an idiot if you ride without lights in the dark. Um, And though battery-powered lights are utterly sufficient for the majority of rides, if you're like me and forgetful or you like very long rides, then a dynamo lighting solution is the way forward. Dynamo lights use the motion of your wheel either through a dedicated hub or less commonly these days with what's called a bottle-style dynamo, which runs on the brake track or sidewall of your tyre to provide power to your lights. Um, It takes a little bit more investment to get the right system in terms of both time and cost, but the long-term costs uh, can be a lot cheaper than going for a battery power set of lights. And also, if you shop around, you know, sensibly, you know, maybe if you're just looking for something just for commuting, you can also spend a lot less money. Um, So for me, if I was building up a dedicated winter bike, I'd be definitely looking at Dynamo Lights. I, I did a ride last night um, and left the house in the dark. And though I know I can trust my, I've got like a Cat Eye 1700 headlight, which I think at kind of a high burn time, you'll maybe get just shy of an hour and 40 minutes, maybe two hours. Although I knew that'd be sufficient for my ride. What if it wasn't? 
And that kind of anxiety really plays on my mind a little bit if I'm out for a longer ride. What if I want to stop and take extra Instagram snaps? Or if I have, I don't know, something goes wrong, I have a mechanical. I just don't like the the battery life anxiety playing on my mind. I think that's a pretty valid point. And maybe that's a good place to leave things. Uh, I guess it is worth saying at the end of all this, we've, we've talked entirely about the bikes here. Riding in the winter is not just about the bike, is it? It's about having the right attitude, being realistic about, you know, the conditions are going to mean that you're probably likely to want to do shorter rides and, you know, the intensities might be different. But having the right kit is also really, really important. Uh, we will probably talk about that in another podcast, but we have some great advice on bike radar. There's a really good article on the best kit to wear for riding in the rain, which has advice from all different members of the team about their years of experience. It's very kind of uh, you Jack to say so, particular. because I put that article together, Matthew. So <laughs> it, it was a great piece. Um, you may or may not want to put sandwich bags <laughs> over your feet, <laughs> but it's definitely worth considering. Well, alternatively, if you really don't like riding outside, you can always spend your entire winter in, in the warmth of your house on your turbo trainer. And there's an excellent guide to smart trainers written by me. On <laughs> <laughs> if, if you are so inclined, that is also an option. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. I've been Matthew Loveridge. I was talking to Jack Luke and Simon Bromley. Please subscribe if you don't already. Tell your friends. Comment on the article when we post it on Bike Radar with this podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.